The air you're breathing now has a history. In fact, the entire atmosphere has a story to tell, recorded in the proportions and arrangement of atoms in the air. On today's podcast, we're taking a look at a new way that oxygen, good old O2, can help us to tease out that story from samples of the modern atmosphere back through time, thanks to ancient bubbles trapped in Antarctic ice. If you wanted to find a secret stash of preserved ancient atmosphere, where would you look? This fossilized tree sand, which we call amber, waited for millions of years with the mosquito inside until Jurassic Park scientists came along. Well, it turns out that bubbles trapped in amber don't quite work. It's an interesting idea that I guess just didn't really pan out in practice. Dr. Lawrence Young is an assistant professor of earth science at Rice University. There are sort of two types of problems with amber. One is that it sits around uh, and gets oxidized at earth surface temperatures, you know, sort of mild earth surface temperatures. Um, What that means is that the gases inside can react with the amber itself. And the other thing is that it's, it doesn't hold on to gases very well, partly because it's at that temperature. So amber ends up potentially sort of just exchanging its gases with the atmosphere on relatively short timescales. Young is a geochemist using chemical tracers to understand the physics and chemistry of the atmosphere. The specific chemical signature of ancient air is like a fingerprint at a crime scene. It's not going to be easy to get a clear print if everything's been smudged up and mixed together with more recent fingerprints. In this case, the fingerprints we're dealing with are ratios of isotopes, atoms of the same element, so they have the same number of protons, that have slightly different masses thanks to an extra neutron or two. Usually you have, for any given atom, you have a couple different stable isotopes. For oxygen, you have three of them, mass 16, 17, and 18. For nitrogen, it's mass 14 and 15, etc. They're usually separated by about one mass unit, one or two mass units. And uh, they don't all have the same natural abundance. Uh, Some of them are much rarer than others. For example, oxygen-18 is 0.2% of all the oxygen atoms everywhere. Those rare heavy oxygen atoms come in handy in lots of ways, going back to the formation of our solar system. We look different from our sun, right? We're just a tiny fragment of all of the mass in our solar system, so we could selectively get some slightly different isotopic composition coming out. But as it turns out, the sun is slightly depleted relative to the Earth in oxygen-17 and oxygen-18 atoms. There was some partitioning of the isotopes as the planets formed. And so when you look at the oxygen isotope composition on different planets, it looks different. Mars has an isotopic signature that's different from ours, which is different again from asteroids. Earth and the moon are actually very similar, supporting the hypothesis that once upon a time, we were a single planetary body. If the Earth and the moon have the same isotopic composition of oxygen to within a couple parts per million, and it's very difficult to explain that unless the Earth and the Moon were, A, made of the same stuff, and two, very well mixed, right before they formed. So at the solar system level, oxygen isotopes can tell you where you're from and something about what's happened to you. And the same is true of the isotopic ratios in the atmosphere. I use stable isotopes to try and understand the cycles that are relevant for the Earth system. You know, in the same way you tag a shark to figure out what its migration patterns are, you can exploit the natural tags that Mother Nature gives us uh, in these stable isotopes. These are isotopes that don't decay. 
radioactively or anything like that. So they really are passive tracers that act just like any other atom or molecule. And so I'm trying to use some of the chemical contrasts to, as signatures to try and understand, well, how is this type of chemistry or physics operated in the past? How is it operating now? The relative abundances of heavy isotopes like oxygen-17 or oxygen-18 are affected by lots of different things. Animal respiration, for example, preferentially takes lighter oxygen-16 out of the atmosphere, and heavier water molecules are harder to evaporate than lighter ones, affecting the isotopes in rainwater. These effects record a history that can tell us how different components of the atmosphere move around and interact chemically. Young, who was recently recognized with the Geochemical Society's Clark Award for outstanding early career work, is pioneering a new technique that relies on even more uncommon combinations of these rare heavy isotopes. And so what we're doing now, what we're realizing that instruments are capable of doing is we can look at the abundance of molecules that have more than one of these rare isotopes. Most of the oxygen molecules in the Earth's atmosphere are oxygen-16 bound to oxygen-16. About four parts per million of those are, are oxygen-18s bound to oxygen-18s. And we're looking at the abundance of those molecules. So we measured a bunch of different air samples all the way from ground level all the way up to about 32 kilometers in altitude and across the world. And we think that there's a simple explanation for what governs the abundances of these ultra-rare 18O-18O molecules in atmospheric oxygen. And that simple explanation is, so the stratosphere, this is the layer above the lower atmosphere where we all live, this is where the ozone layer is. It's colder and there's a lot of ozone photochemistry, so what it does is it sets an isotopic abundance of 18O-18O. There's a characteristic amount of that uh, that comes from the stratosphere. And then in the troposphere, it looks different. So there's a little bit less 18O-18O in the troposphere than there is in the stratosphere. And so uh, when those two reservoirs mix, then you establish some characteristic proportion of stratospheric air versus tropospheric air. If you know how much 18O-18O is being made up in the stratosphere, and you measure how much there is down in the troposphere, then you've learned something about how often and how vigorously they get mixed together. And that's something that's been studied for the present day atmosphere with lots of other methods providing a baseline for comparison. So if you wanted to then trace this isotopic ratio back into the past, you'd have a basis for interpreting that signature. It's a matter of understanding how the atmosphere works and how quickly the stratosphere and troposphere talk to each other. You know, this is sort of very interesting because here we've gone up and measured what the signatures are in the upper atmosphere and in the lower atmosphere. We put a bunch of data through a 3D global chemical transport model. And uh, we are using those two things to try and sort of make them consistent with each other. And it turns out that the model essentially predicts what we see today, which is kind of good. And so part of it is, okay, we have to develop the techniques to measure these species. And we have to understand what controls them, you know, in the modern atmosphere, and then use that information together with models to try and understand something about the past. But how do you measure this ultra-rare molecule in the ancient atmosphere? We already know that amber doesn't work, sorry Jurassic Park, but there's another, better, and colder place to look for bubbles. Everyone has their origin story in earth science, and mine, I don't know where mine came from, but Part of it is the secret desire to want to go to Antarctica and like visit kind of really cool, literally and figuratively, really cool places. 
And one of the ways to get to Antarctica is to become an ice core scientist. <laughs> ice cores. Young's search for an archive of ancient air led him not quite to Antarctica itself, but to the National Ice Core Laboratory, a repository in Denver, Colorado that houses 17 kilometers of precious ice collected from Greenland and Antarctica. The annual layers in the ice itself provide one of the most robust and comprehensive temperature records we have, going back hundreds of millions of years. The amount of heavy oxygen in water that's evaporated over the ocean and then precipitated onto a glacier is sensitive to the temperature of the air where it's snowing. A little extra oxygen-18 in one layer compared to the last indicates a little bit of a warmer year. In addition to the ice layers themselves, though, the cores contain another hidden surprise. Tiny bubbles trap samples of the actual atmospheric gases themselves. When snow first falls, it's very loosely packed, right? So the density is relatively low. But as snow continues to fall on top of that ice, it gets denser and denser and denser. And only when enough snow has fallen do you start making ice. You take that snow and turn it into ice. And when it turns into ice, you have bubbles start to form, right? That's when you start trapping the atmosphere inside those bubbles. Dating the ice itself is relatively straightforward. There are annual layers thanks to seasonal differences in sea salt deposition and snowfall, and volcanic ash can provide absolute dates to anchor the timeline. But the bubbles are a different story. Attaching a date to them is no small feat. So with ice, it's relatively simple. It's a little bit easier to date that ice, but the gases themselves, you have to know something about the physics, uh, the transfer between the atmosphere and the ice itself. And that's because it takes a little bit of time for gases to diffuse from the atmosphere all the way to the bottom of the ice layer where the bubbles start to form. There's a lot of very interesting physics there because you can see effects due to gravitation, you can see effects due to temperature, you can see effects due to the bubbles actually physically closing off and having very small characteristic distances between the atoms in a crystal structure. And so you sort of have to know, in order to get a date for the gases, what you have to do is you have to know a lot about the ice. You have to know what the accumulation rates are, you have to know what the uh, relative porosity of the ice is as you go down a column of, of unconsolidated snow. You have to know the temperatures. You have to understand something about the seasonality of the snow. So along with the ice core itself, a huge amount of work goes into studying the drill site before the sample is taken and measuring the properties of the ice in the borehole afterward. Together, all of this work gives us a time history of the composition of the atmosphere and its isotopic abundances. Young is aiming to extend that line of research to his ultra-rare 18-0-18-0 molecules to see how mixing between the stratosphere and troposphere may have been different in the past than it is today. These bubbles end up trapping gases of the ancient atmosphere, um, and it tells you something about the recent past, say up to a million years at this point. So this field that I'm looking at right now, this looking at more than one isotope bound together in the same molecule, it's sort of a natural extension or evolution of the existing isotope field, right? So a lot of people will spend a lot of time doing a lot of careful, uh, really beautiful work on the isotopic composition of many of the gases trapped in these ice cores. And as an overarching hypothesis, my belief is that if you look at these uh, molecules that have more than one rare stable isotope more broadly, we will understand something fundamentally new about the ancient atmosphere.
But how do you go from a six centimeter long section of an ancient ice core to an understanding of the oxygen isotopes trapped inside it? Very carefully. If you look at them, they have little tiny bubbles in them. And what you have to do is you have to scrape off or uh, use a bandsaw and cut off maybe a centimeter or so of ice just to make sure that you know, there aren't any contaminants when you do your measurements. And you put it inside a little chamber and you evacuate all the, the outside air in that chamber and then you melt the ice. And when you melt the ice, you can actually see it bubble, right? The little bubbles start uh, coming out and exalting from the ice and then you get a little sample of ancient air inside that chamber. And then you take that air uh, we purify it through a gas chromatograph to get rid of the uh, nitrogen and the argon. And so all we're left with is the oxygen molecules. Next, these oxygen molecules, most of them good old pairs of oxygen-16, take a spin through a mass spectrometer, which uses magnets to manipulate the molecules into sorting themselves out by mass. A mass spectrometer works generally uh, by taking a molecule and ionizing it. You have a filament just exactly like a light bulb, it's made of tungsten. Send a current through it, heat it up, and it sends uh, electrons towards a positively charged plate. And uh, you send oxygen molecules in there, they get in the way of the electrons, the electrons collide with the oxygen, and they ionize the oxygen molecules. And so you get these oxygen ions. Ions are actually really easy to deal with because you can use charge plates to steer them and focus them. Um, and so you send them, you accelerate them through a set of charge plates and you focus them, and then you send them through a magnet. Uh, in our case, it's a static magnetic sector magnet. So you use uh, the Lorentz law, which says that if you send a charged particle through a magnet, it tends to take a right turn. And it takes a right turn according to its momentum. So heavy things going at a particular speed tend to have slightly more momentum than lighter things going at a particular speed. So lighter things tend to turn a little bit more in the magnet. They take a little bit more of a right turn in the magnet. And then heavier things take a slightly smaller right turn. And so on the output side of the magnet, what you see is that your initial beam of collimated ions becomes a beam that's split up and filtered according to the molecular mass. And so you could think of this as kind of the charged particle equivalent of a prism, where you send in a beam of white light and you get colors coming out on the other side. Physics are slightly different, but in spirit, that is what it's like. At the end of the day, you end up with a complete census of all of the oxygen molecules that were once trapped in the ice. And as for the ice core itself? Yeah, so that core is it's completely gone. It's melted. We have a little small pool of water somewhere. I think we might save it because it, you know, Antarctic water is kind of a cool thing to have around. While they're proving useful for the present day atmosphere, it remains to be seen what Young's 18010 molecules will tell us about the past. What's clear is that cutting edge techniques like this one are pushing the field toward a better understanding of the dynamics of Earth systems. It's not just about global averages anymore. You know, there are thermodynamic aspects of climate, things like temperature, chemical composition, You've got energy in, energy out, things like this. Uh, but then there are all these dynamical aspects of climate and Earth's atmosphere that aren't nearly as well constrained. Well, how often do the lower and the upper atmosphere overturn? Like, how often do they talk to each other? How rapidly or vigorously do they mix? How strong are storm systems in the past? Things of that nature, right? Ultimately, it's a very difficult problem. And 
we care a lot about whether we're going to have a big storm, a big, you know, in Texas, we care about whether we're going to have a big flood this year or how bad it's going to be. You know, we care about hurricanes as well. And it's very difficult to predict, well, how many hurricanes are there going to be based just on global temperature averages, for example. Uh, these tend to be more dynamic properties of the atmosphere. Just think of all that can be teased out of these intricate trajectories of elusive molecules. In some ways, that's a, a big frontier. We've got a lot of information about the dynamics of the atmosphere as long as we've been looking at the atmosphere in detail. And that, unfortunately, hasn't been really, really long time, right? It's only been about you know, maybe past half century or so. So it's kind of a cool way of being able to push our understanding forward of the physics of the past atmosphere. You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast, and you can find out more about ice cores and oxygen isotopes on our website, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com.